In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, God gave instructions to the children of Israel that they were to take a lamb from their herds, a spotless lamb, a lamb without any blemish or fault in it. And on the 14th day of the month Nisan, that was the first month of their year, uh, around the time of March, April in our calendar, on the 14th day of the month Nisan, they were to take that pure and spotless lamb and kill it. And they were to put the blood on the doorpost and lintel of their doors and If they put the blood on the door, the angel of death that night would pass over them. But any house without the blood uh, would suffer the death of the firstborn in that house. But did you know that that was not all God instructed? Uh, If you read Exodus chapter 12, you'll discover that on the 10th day of Nisan, uh, four days before they were to slaughter the lamb, they were to choose it and keep the lamb in their home for four days. You might think, well, why? What was the purpose of those four days? And the rabbis and the Jewish teachers explain that the reason was because it was over those four days they were to test the lamb to see if it truly was blameless and without spot. They were to use those four days to inspect the lamb to ensure that it truly was a pure sacrifice to be offered on the 14th. And why do I share all that? Well, the Bible teaches that our Passover lamb is Jesus. And he too was slaughtered on the 14th day of Nisan. Uh, We're going to read of it in this book of Mark in just a few weeks' time, God willing. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed so that we too may escape death, that we too may find salvation. Not just the temporary salvation that those firstborn experience in Egypt, but eternal life and eternal salvation through Christ. But in the passage we are reading, we are in the week before Jesus was crucified. And just as that lamb was tested for four days before it was slaughtered, so Jesus was tested. He was tested by the rulers, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they 
plied him with questions, trying to catch him out, trying to prove him not to be who he said he was. And in these verses we read, we see that testing. Question after question uh, given to Christ. And we discover that Christ comes out of it faultless. He comes out of it shining and pure. What I'd like to do this evening is look in more detail at how Christ did that. And my hope is it will help us to see the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of Christ and give us assurance that Christ is the saviour who he claimed to be. He is the one and only spotless Lamb of God who we can trust our salvation to. And we see in this passage that three different sets of people or representatives from three different sets of people try to test Jesus. They give him hard questions, some with better motives than others. But in each case, Christ comes out vindicated. Uh, so let's look at the first group who are spoken of. Uh, in a sense, you could say it's two groups merged together, but we see them spoken of in verse 13. It says, Then they, that's the religious leaders, sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now, the Pharisees hated Jesus. Uh, They considered themselves the leaders of the Jews. They considered themselves to be the ones the people should chiefly look up to. And Jesus had come along and had cramped their style. Uh, No longer had they the exclusive ear of the people, or they didn't have the ear of the people exclusively. Jesus was speaking other things often critical things of them, and the people were listening to him and turning away from them. And they hated him because of it. And so they come to him, seek him to catch him in his words. They want to ask him a question which will demean him in the eyes of others. Uh, Perhaps you've seen this done or perhaps you've been tempted to do it yourself, or perhaps have done it yourself. Uh, Try to catch someone out with a question and to make them look bad when they can't give an answer, or their answer is um, you trick them into some answer which makes them look bad. That's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do here. But their question seems at first sight pretty... um, innocuous. It seems uh, pretty tame. Uh, Listen to what they say in verse 14. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. Uh, Incidentally, they don't mean, they weren't saying that he didn't care about anyone, he didn't love anyone. They mean that he's not partial to anyone. He didn't favor one group above another. Uh, You are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar 
or not? That's their question. They come to Jesus and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you think, well, that's a fair enough question. Sounds pretty innocent. But that's until we understand the situation this question was given in. Now remember that the Jews at this time were under the oppression of Rome. They were longing to escape from under the thumb of the emperor and the governors which the emperor put over them. And there were many Jews at this time who were wanting to start a revolt and to um, turn against their Roman overlords. They hated the tax collectors who the Romans put over them who took uh, extortionate amounts of their wealth. And they hated such people. So this question puts Jesus, or they hoped would put Jesus, in a very difficult situation. Because if Jesus answers that they should pay taxes, then the people might turn on him. And they might think that Jesus is a Roman sympathizer. And so the crowds will hate Jesus. But if Jesus says they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's on the wrong side of the authorities. And the Roman authorities might take exception to Jesus. Either way, the Pharisees are happy because either the crowd will turn on Jesus or the authorities will turn on Jesus. So we see how they're trying to trick him in order to put him into a difficult situation and they want to undermine his authority at best and ultimately have him killed at worst. But Jesus, however, uh, sees through their malicious cunning. Uh, And instead of falling into their trap and giving a thoughtless answer... He asks for a coin, uh, for a denarius, uh, which was a coin which had the emperor's head on the coin, much like our coins have uh, the queen's, soon the king's head on it. And he asks them a question. He says to the Pharisees, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they give the obvious answer, well, it's Caesar's. They could see it there on the coin. I assume at this time it uh, be the emperor uh, Tiberius, or is it Claudius? I can't remember. Uh, but they say it's Caesar's. Caesar's head on the coin. And Jesus says to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to to God. Now you might object, you might say, well that doesn't answer the question. That doesn't answer the question they gave. And you're right, it doesn't. That's exactly the point. Uh, the Pharisees have tried to serve an unreturnable serve to Christ, but he has thrown the ball back into their court. 
he throws the responsibility back on them to answer the question. He wants them to judge what they should give to Caesar and what they should give to God. He doesn't make that stand in this moment. He simply makes a statement which nobody can argue with. You should give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And he puts the ball back in their court and he refuses to be caught out. And we're told that the people marveled at the wisdom of his response. We don't always have to answer every question given to us, especially when that question is a trick question designed to trap us. And Jesus shows his wisdom here by refusing to be drawn into a controversy that he did not need to be drawn into. And as I say, they marveled at his wisdom. So the Pharisees' question is defeated. But then another group comes up. Uh, This time, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were members of another uh, influential Jewish uh, kind of subgroup. Uh, Most of them were kind of uh, wealthier and in the Jewish aristocracy. And uh, their chief uh, distinguishing characteristic was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. You can read that in verse 18. It says, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him. Uh, They didn't believe that people could rise from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. Perhaps you're in some strange floaty place, but there is no resurrection. But Jesus, of course, taught there would be a resurrection. Uh, He himself did rise again not too long after this. And so the Sadducees hated his teaching. And they too try to trick him. But they try to trick him in another way. Uh, They come up with a very convoluted story which they hope will make a nonsense of the idea of resurrection. And they're hoping to make Jesus look foolish as he tries to answer this question. Uh, They invent a story about a woman who had a a husband who had six brothers. And the husband dies and before they've had any children. So according to the Jewish custom, Jewish laws of that time, she married the next brother. And they imagine that he dies also before they've had children. And the same happens with the third, fourth, fifth and sixth. Now, most of us would be starting to have questions (laughs) about that wife at this point, but it's a hypothetical situation that they are giving. And they say to Jesus, all seven brothers die without having children, though they've all married the same woman, one after the other. So whose husband or whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They're all resurrected, all seven brothers, 
who she's married, she's been married to all of them, which husband will be hers? And they hope that this will show the nonsensical uh, nature of resurrection. How can resurrection be true when you would have to have this uh, bizarre situation if it was? They're hoping for Jesus to look foolish. But Jesus responds that it's the Sadducees who are mistaken. It's not he who misunderstands the Bible. It's they. And he does it in two ways. Uh, Notice what he says in verses 24 and 25. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus explains there is no marriage in heaven. Uh, So the answer is that she will be none of those brothers' wives. The Sadducees have made a false assumption. They've assumed that there is marriage in heaven, and Jesus says there is not marriage in heaven. Now, that might surprise you uh, this evening. I'm not sure. Uh, Perhaps that uh, disappoints you. I've I've heard um, people say that that's a very difficult um, thought to deal with, that you will not be married to your spouse in heaven. Uh, But the reason is quite simple. Uh, The Bible makes very clear that marriage is a picture. Uh, Marriage on earth is a picture of Christ and the church. And if I can put it this way without being glib, uh, marriage is like a play performed on earth which points us to the reality of Christ's love for his church. But when we get to heaven, we will see the reality in its fullness. We will see Christ as he is and his church glorified and perfect. So we won't need the picture anymore. Uh, That would be like using a torch in broad daylight. Pointless. You use a torch when it's dark, not when the sun is shining. Uh, It'd be like playing with a toy car when you've got a real car in the drive. Uh, You see how it doesn't make sense. Or it'd be like using a crutch after you've been cured and can run and walk again. Uh, Marriage is a temporary thing God has given to point us to a greater reality. And the Sadducees had not grasped that. They were focused merely on the here and the now. Perhaps that's hard for us to understand. Uh, In the same way, it's hard for a child to imagine what it's like to drive a real car. Or it would be the same as trying to understand the sun if you were born blind. Uh, You can't wrap our heads around it, perhaps, but that's what the Bible teaches there is a greater reality that earthly marriage merely points to. And Jesus explains that to the Sadducees. But he gives a second reason why they're mistaken as well. 
Look at verse 26. He says, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament scriptures. And it's interesting because the Sadducees uh, had special reverence for the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Uh, I think it might even be the case that they didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament as scripture, but they focused on the five books of Moses. But Jesus turns to those scriptures. He turns to the book of Exodus, and he quotes God's own words, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When he said those words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long since dead. And Jesus says, God's not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. He says there is a resurrection. We will be raised again one day. Our soul does not disappear into oblivion. Our souls will be reunited reunited with our bodies one day. And that is true, by the way, of believers and unbelievers. You know the Bible teaches that? It teaches there will be a resurrection of the just, the justified, and the unjust. Both will be resurrected because God is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. And so Jesus uses their own scriptures to show that they are the ones who are mistaken, not him. And so Jesus passes this second test. He doesn't get humiliated by the Sadducees' question. Instead, if you like, he humiliates the Sadducees and shows how they do not understand the scriptures they profess to love so much. Uh, If you like, they've tried to bowl Jesus a googly, if you know what a googly is in cricket, and Christ has hit it over their head for six. He has not been tricked by their cunning question. Jesus has passed the test again. But this leads to the third group of people. We've seen the Pharisees have tried to catch him out. We've seen the Sadducees have tried to catch him out and have failed. But now we see the scribes. Uh, But this situation is slightly different. Look at verse 28. Uh, It says, uh, then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Uh, One of the scribes comes. Now, the scribes were those who could read and write. Not everyone could read and write in society of Jesus' day. And the scribes were those who were specifically tasked with understanding God's word and recording God's word and teaching it to the people. And this scribe has been listening to what Jesus has been saying and how he's been answering the questions. And he notes 
how well Jesus has responded to these questions. And so he comes with a question of his own. But unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's not trying to catch him out. He's not trying to uh, catch Jesus in a trap. Instead, this is a genuine question. He asks him the question, which is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment? A question of great importance for a scribe whose job was to understand and teach the Old Testament law. And because this is an honest question, Christ gives him a straight answer. You can see his answer in verses 29 to 31. It says, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your minds, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In just these three verses, Jesus sums up the Old Testament law. And he sums it up that the greatest commandment is to first love God with all your heart and second to love your neighbour as yourself. And by answering in this way, Jesus shows that God is not primarily concerned with religious acts. He's not primarily concerned with ritualistic behaviour. He's not primarily concerned with outward appearance. How many times you go to church, how long you pray, uh, how much you gave. That's not God's primary interest. What God wants first and foremost is our heart. He wants us to have a genuine, warm love for him, which flows into a genuine and warm love for others. That is the beating heart of God's law. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and so many of the scribes unfortunately did not understand that. They turned it on its head and they forgot about genuine love, genuine compassion, genuine sincerity of heart. And instead they focused on the outward externals uh, of long prayers in the synagogue, uh, of large offerings into the offertory bowls. Uh, of the approval of those around, or as Jesus put it, you wash the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside unclean. Or as the book of Samuel puts it, uh, Samuel uh, spoke to Jesse, the father of David, and said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." That's what God is chiefly concerned with. And did you notice how the scribe responds? Verse 32, it says, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, 
you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus says in verse 34 that this man has answered wisely and that he's not far from the kingdom of God. And the reason is because once you understand that God is chiefly concerned about our hearts, then you realize that we are in a desperate situation. Because it's possible to be religious. There are many religious people in life who diligently go to church or go to the synagogue or go to the mosque or go to the Gurdwara. uh, And they diligently follow their religious practices. You can, with discipline, live a very righteous religious life. But what you cannot do is change your heart. You cannot make your heart pure. That's why Jesus taught in John's gospel, you must be born again. And this scribe is close to understanding that. He's close to understanding that it does not matter how many burnt offerings he offers. It doesn't matter how many lambs he gives to God, or how much blood is spilt, Unless he can have a change of heart, unless he can have a purified heart, unless he can be given a new heart, then there is no hope for him. Again, as Jesus himself said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because, of course, those lambs, those sacrifices only pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the only sacrifice that can purify our hearts, which can make us pure on the inside. It's on the basis of what Jesus is about to do in these next few chapters that God is able to give a new heart to anyone, anyone at all who comes to him in faith. And that's why Jesus says to this scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Did you notice what it said at the end of verse 34? After that, no one dared question him. They saw they had more than met their match in Christ. He knew the scriptures better than they did. Uh, He understood the scriptures better than they did. Uh, He was more wise than they were. He wasn't tricked by their cunning and by their so-called cleverness. He demonstrated himself to be the perfect lamb of God that he claimed to be. But in closing, did you notice what happened in verses 35 to 37? Jesus has been busy on the defensive responding to all these questions which have been targeted at him. But in verse 35, he goes, if you like, on the attack. And he asks them a question. Verse 35, it says, And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, the religious leaders hated what Jesus taught. They especially hated how he made himself equal with God. He declared God to be his father. He declared himself to be the Christ. He declared himself uh, to be the one who God would use to save this world. And the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy. And they said, in essence, how can God be a man? How can you, as a man, make yourself out to be God? But here Jesus goes, as I say, on the attack. And he says, that is exactly what the Old Testament teaches. And he points to uh, the book of Psalms and to uh, Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 was recognized as a messianic psalm. It was a psalm all about the Messiah, David's son who was coming, who would rule Israel and be given an eternal kingdom. Everyone amongst the Jews, the scribes, the religious leaders understood Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. But in those verses, David, who wrote that psalm, says these words. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, um, David, sorry, talks about the Messiah, who the psalm is about, who they all knew was David's son, and yet he calls the Messiah his Lord. Now, especially in Jewish society, a father was always greater than the son. Uh, the son was always to show deference and respect to the father. But here... You've got David showing respect and deference to his son, the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, how can that be? Uh, He says in verse 37, therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? How can this be? How can he be both David's son, yet also David's Lord? And we know the answer, of course, don't we? The answer is that although Jesus was David's son physically, Jesus existed long before David. Jesus existed long before Abraham. Jesus existed long before the creation of the world. As John's Gospel puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. And Jesus is saying, look, your Old Testament scriptures teach who I am. I am David's son, but I am David's Lord. I'm not blaspheming. I'm telling you the truth. And there was no answer they could give. They had the choice whether to bow to Jesus' wisdom or to continue to resist. And the same is true of all of us here this evening. 
I've gone on a bit longer than I intended. But we have that same choice before us. Will we bow to the greater wisdom of Christ? Or will we continue to fight against him? Or ignore his words and try to shut them out like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did? Will we respond with pride? Or will we respond with humility and joy? Because that was the last few words of that verse. Did you notice what it said in verse 37? And the common people heard him gladly. Which will you be like? Will you be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who thought they were something, who were proud and didn't want to bow the knee to Christ? Or will we be like the common people who heard him gladly, who said, this is our king, this is our Messiah, He has a wisdom which is greater than ours. This is someone we can trust. Uh, I trust and hope that all of us here this evening or watching online will bow to the greater wisdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, especially as we see in later weeks uh, how Jesus came to die for us. But we'll close there. And with those thoughts in mind, we will sing uh, a final hymn number 122, Uh, number 122, a hymn of praise to Christ. Come, let us join our cheerful songs with angels round the throne. 10,000, thousand are their tongues, but all their joys are one. So we'll stand to sing in closing, number 122.